As we discussed earlier this week, delegates from around the world are assembling in Dubai for COP28, the latest international climate conference to try and thrash out some more ambitious approaches to the daunting challenge of climate change. But uh, while some progress has been made over the years, uh, we all know not enough. This year, all sorts of global temperature records have been broken and carbon emissions are still heading very much in the wrong direction. Of course, rising temperatures present all sorts of threats to our society and economies, but in our planet's wilderness areas, all manner of strange and terrible changes are well and truly underway. We welcome back to the program South African journalist Adam Welch, W-E-L-Z. And uh, Adam has travelled to some of these wild places to witness the changes for himself and for us. He tells the story in a new book. It's called The End of Eden, Wild Nature in the Age of Climate Breakdown. And Adam joins us from his home. Adam, you start your book with a stroll in one of New York's uh, city parks. To a casual observer, things look uh, pretty much as usual. But if you look closer, what is going on? Yeah, I think it's important for people to recognise that climate change or climate breakdown, as I prefer to call it, isn't only affecting uh, species and ecosystems in far-off places. Like, you know, we've all heard of uh, polar bears and ice melts and the Arctic and things like this. And this seems quite dramatic, but it also seems quite far away. What I want folks to realize is that climate breakdown is affecting pretty much all species and all ecosystems everywhere, even in urban parks like parks in New York City where I I used to live, which, which I know quite well. So, for example, we're getting more and more plant diseases from, you know, further south in the U.S., moving north into the city, and various plants that did perfectly fine 10 years ago are suddenly in trouble because they're being hit by all kinds of new insects and new funguses that they haven't been exposed to before. There have also been, you know, big hurricanes recently in New York City, like the famous Hurricane Sandy, which have knocked down a whole bunch of trees. Uh, new bird species that used to occur only in sort of more warm climates are coming into New York, and other bird species are being forced out by by the climate changes. So, you know, even in in an urban park, you know, all sorts of things are changing in these ecosystems. And and even though they can be quite subtle to the casual observer and maybe unnoticeable, these what I call little small-scale ecological breakups and breakdowns collectively have really um, serious effects on ecosystems and, 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 you know, result in really consequential change. Now, of course, our planet has endured cataclysmic events uh, before from meteorite impacts to uh, giant volcanic eruptions. What's different about this crisis? 
Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing is, you know, when you look into deep time, and we're talking tens, hundreds of millions of years ago, um, there are these episodes of mass extinction that have been caused by huge climate shifts, like, as you say, meteorite impacts, famously sort of doing in the dinosaurs, um, and other mass extinction events that were driven by really just unbelievably large volcanic eruptions that caused massive climate, you know, global climate change, which drove, you know, just unbelievable extinctions. What's interesting and what's rather worrying about the current situation is that we seem to be driving up the concentration of carbon dioxide and other um, heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere even faster than uh, the rate at which they were driven up during these past episodes of mass extinction. Uh, if we look at the some of the, the past episodes of mass extinction that were driven by large volcanic eruptions and colossal forest fires that resulted from those and so on, these uh, episodes tended to play out over tens of thousands of years. This is uh, what what is shown in the fossil fossil record. We're now driving up, you know, carbon dioxide uh, and other gases in the atmosphere. We're driving up their concentrations, you know, within hundreds of years rather than tens of thousands of years, to to similar levels. And this, you know, I think should be, a, you know, of really great concern. It's it's different this time because it's happening a lot faster. And the faster things happen like this, the faster these impacts happen on the on on ecosystems and wild species, the more forceful their impact is because species have far less time to try and evolve to deal with these changes. Adam, your book is. Um Something of an elegy for nature, for what we've lost and what we are rapidly losing. So take us back to when our species emerged in its current form around 200,000 years ago. What sort of natural world did we inhabit? Yeah, this is a, an, a, an interesting point, and I think something that a lot of people don't know, and it's uh, really the inspiration for the title of the book, we emerge in a kind of an Eden. I mean, we by I mean the species Homo sapiens that started evolving roughly 300,000 years ago. And we were probably anatomically pretty much as we are today, around 200,000 years ago. We emerged, we evolved in a kind of Eden, by which I mean this period, this, this recent couple hundred thousand years was the most biodiverse period in the entire history of the planet, in the entire billion plus years history of, 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 of the planet. Um, in other words, Homo sapiens e emerged in a world that had more different wild species in it than at any previous time in Earth's history. And this really helped us, you know, this really helped us. It gave us a lot more different species to feed on, you know, to eat and to to live with and to, to use as medicine. And certainly gave us a much more, uh, you know, richer and more stable ecosystems to evolve in than possibly in previous periods where, where, where ecosystems were much less diverse. So we did... We evolved in, in a kind of an Eden 
not not a sort of fantastical religious book kind of an Eden, but you know, an incredibly diverse and wondrous and and beautiful world compared to any other sort of world that's existed on this planet before. Adam, you uh, don't use the term climate change much in your book. You, as you've already done, you talk about a climate breakdown. Why is that a better description? I think the term climate change has several problems with it, one of which is this uh, thing that it introduces, it squashes together two diametrically opposite kind of concepts. Climate as we learn about it in school and, you know, so on growing up, is a predictable thing. It's a constant thing, right? You can make statements about climate like, you know, the climate in Sydney is, you know, X, Y, Z, sort of issue description. You can also say things like summer follows spring and, and, and the seasons have this sort of predictable progression to them, right? But the word change is... Is, is diametrically opposed to that. And I think, and cognitive linguists will tell you, this creates a subconscious kind of clash when we hear the term. And that results in a lot of people actually rejecting the idea because, to use a crude term, this is how our BS detectors work. When we subconsciously uh, we subconsciously react to certain ideas and, and certain things in a negative way, that's often because they don't make uh, sense to us on a subconscious level, and so we reject them. And I think climate change is, is one of these terms, and I think a lot of the reactions we see in certain people to the term climate change is because of this. It's 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 confusing actually, on a subconscious level, and it doesn't make sense. Whereas the term climate breakdown, for me, uh, the term breakdown implies a kind of structure. It addresses this idea that climate is a kind of predictable, structured thing, that, you know, the, the concept that we've all grown up with. And it says in a more clearer way, in a more blatant way, that this is actually breaking down, that this is not also just a change that might change back one day. Um, this is a directional thing. This is a structure that is actually falling apart. And we can't just put it back together again. We uh, began wandering together through, well, Central Park and Manhattan. Take me now to the Mojave yeah. Desert in California. Yeah, this is a really fascinating story. When I discovered it, I thought this is really, really interesting. Um, the Mojave Desert in California is, you know, it's a large, dry desert, but it's actually a fairly diverse desert. When you walk around in it, there's quite a lot of living things that you see. Um, and it seems, environmentally, it sort of seems fine. If you go there, there's not a whole lot of pollution, there's not a whole lot of roads, there's not a whole lot of houses and factories that cause habitat destruction. It looks like a, a pretty, let's say, pristine natural environment. But as uh, researchers have discovered, there are only around half the breeding bird species in the Mojave today than there were 100 years ago. There's been a collapse in, in the bird community of the Mojave Desert. And uh, at first, it was a bit of a mystery as to why. Scientists figure this out, by the way, because 
around 100 years ago, there was a, a well-known ecologist called um, Grinnell, who, uh, along with a whole bunch of students, did these incredibly detailed surveys of the life, uh, uh, the, the wildlife in California, including the birds and the small mammals and so on. And uh, a few years ago, um, some researchers from the University of California in Berkeley went and essentially replicated Grinnell's surveys and found this incredible loss of bird species. This was a mystery to them for a little while until they started looking at how, how you know birds react to high temperatures in the middle of the day. And this has been really uh, clearly uh, worked out, in fact, by some researchers here in, in Southern Africa, looking at hornbills in the Kalahari um, region, which is a semi-desert region, you know, in central Southern Africa. And what they've found is, you know, birds, once the daytime temperature hits a certain level, birds have to stop doing pretty much anything. They need to essentially go and sit in the shade and do nothing except pant to offload um, thermal energy, to offload heat from their bodies. Otherwise, they will overheat and die. And, and what researchers have found is that as daytime temperatures have gone up in all sorts of dry land areas around the world, like the Kalahari here in Southern Africa, like the Mojave in California, birds are having to spend more and more hours every day sitting in the shade and doing nothing. And this leaves them with too little time to find food, not only for themselves, but really for their babies that are in the nest, their nestlings that are very hungry, that need a lot of food in their nests. So it's not like these birds are dropping out of the sky in massive numbers in this kind of dramatic way. You're not seeing this very obvious dramatic uh, you know, heat death of huge numbers of birds. What's happening is these bird species are failing to breed successfully, again, in this kind of quiet, subtle way, and so their species are disappearing gradually from these uh, dryland areas of the world. Adam, we've gone from Manhattan to the Mojave. Let's now head to the uh, forests of North America and talk about the ghost moose. Yeah, this is another rather macabre story. What's happening in, in the northeastern U.S., the areas uh, such as uh, states such as Maine and Vermont, uh, these are very cold areas in winter and still in summer they're rather cool. These are forested areas that until recently had very large populations and healthy populations of, of moose in them. But what's happened in recent years is that, again, as temperatures have increased, this has, in, in effect, lengthened the summers in these areas. The, the springs are getting warmer earlier than they used to, and the autumns are staying warmer longer than they used to. And what that means is there's a species of tick, small ticks that occur in, the, in this area called winter ticks, interestingly enough. These winter ticks now have longer periods of time to hang out and grab onto animals, uh, moose. You know, ticks hang out on vegetation and they wait for animals to walk past. And as these animals walk past, you know, the ticks grab onto them. Winter ticks, like pretty much all ticks, will be killed if they're not on a warm animal during the winter. Now, they've got a much longer period, several weeks more, to grab onto animals now, which means that 
animals like moose are getting much more ticks on them. And moose, interestingly enough, because they've always lived in cold areas with very low tick populations, they've never developed the behavior of getting rid of ticks. They don't have grooming behaviors that allow them to get rid of ticks. So the ticks just accumulate on these moose. And sadly, now with these hugely increased numbers of ticks, moose are, are suffering and actually dying. They're literally being exsanguinated, especially young ones, are get, getting such heavy tick loads that they're literally having so much blood sucked out of them that they die. Um, uh, there's a sort of dramatic figure. The average uh, moose in, 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 in Vermont now carries uh, 47,000 winter ticks. There's literally just these large masses of ticks on these animals. And they're dying in enormous numbers. The moose population is going down. And this is just because of a very slight rise in, in warm season temperatures that has you know, lengthened the warm season by a few weeks compared to, say, 10 years ago. Adam, let's go from the, the ghost moose to the white stork, another interesting story. Yeah, so uh, birds, you know, a lot of bird species migrate, you know, especially birds that li that live in the towards the poles in the colder regions of the world, they'll, you know, they'll breed in these these high latitudes uh, in in the in the summer and then as things get cold and and the snow closes in, they'll fly, you know, often many thousands of kilometers closer to the equator to spend the the winter part of the year in, in in warmer latitudes. Now, one of these birds that does a very famous migration that's, of course, super culturally significant in Europe is the white stork, right? The baby-bringing baby birds that um, it has, have nested on rooftops in, in Europe uh, for, for, for thousands of years. Um, these birds, of course, migrate to, have traditionally migrated to, to Africa. And it's really amazing. Around this time of the year here in South Africa, I can drive a short way out of the city and sometimes see hundreds or even thousands of white storks um, feeding, you know, in our in our in our habitats here in southern Africa in in our summer in the in the European winter. But what's quite interesting is now as winters are not so harsh anymore, as things are uh, warming up in Europe, a lot of storks are just simply not migrating to Africa anymore. They're either staying put uh, where, you know, not moving at all, or just moving a little ways south, say from, you know, Germany or France to Spain, um, because migration is dangerous. And a whole bunch of storks now, thousands of storks literally are, are deciding not to migrate anymore because they can just fly a short distance to Spain and feed on rubbish tips in Spain, find find food and rubbish tips in Spain, or you know just stay in their in their part of southern Germany because and you're get predicting that cold in the you're anymore. predicting that this uh, pattern, if this migration pattern continues to shrink, we might see two different stork species evolve. Yeah, and and that's the interesting thing is 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 some storks recently are sticking around in South Africa. They're actually not going back to Europe because they're kind of finding oh the the environment here is not too bad. And in the last ten fifteen years, we've had pairs of storks starting to breed in the in the area around Cape Town. 
And if this continues, uh, this pattern continues, which it seems likely it will, what, what we will end up happening is stocks will stop doing this long-distance migration between uh, sub-Saharan Africa and Europe, and you'll get two sedentary populations developing, uh, a, a sort of stay-at-home population in Europe and a stay-at-home <laughs> population in South Africa, and they will start evolving into different species. Now, let's uh, come to Australia, where you've spent quite a bit of time, and uh, talk about the green turtles, something very ominous is happening here. Yeah, turtles are really interesting. Because their uh, their sex is not determined by uh, genes, by chromosomes, as it is in, in humans and mammals and so on. The the sex of a baby turtle is determined by the temperature at which the egg is incubated. Right. So marine turtles like the green turtle that I write about, they float around in the ocean and once a year or so they pull up onto a beach somewhere, they dig a hole in the sand, and dump a whole lot of eggs in it, and mother turtle goes off back into the ocean. The turtle eggs incubate in the sand and then, of course, the little babies dig their way out, hatch out, and you have those spectacular scenes of loads of tiny, cute baby turtles making their way into the ocean. But uh, the the sex of these turtles is determined, uh, as I said, by the temperature at which these eggs incubate at. And the higher that temperature is, the more likely these turtles are to become female. And what we're seeing in the big turtle breeding areas like the one in Rain Island and uh, northern Great Barrier Reef is these northernmost colonies of turtles in Australia, of sea turtles, are becoming almost 100% female in the sense that the baby, the babies that are being produced by these nests in these areas are almost 100% female now because of the, the small rise in temperature has crossed the line, if you like, in, in these areas uh, for these turtles. So we're seeing this ongoing feminization of the turtle population. Eventually, there are going to be no males at all. That might happen within a few decades. And, of course, then turtles, uh, these sea turtles, will no longer be able to reproduce. And that's really kind of alarming. Let's now cross the planet from Australia to Namibia. And uh, I want you to tell me the sad story of cheetahs going blind. Yeah, and again, another fascinating thing. Um, a lot of people, when they think about climate change and its effects on you know ecosystems or the planet or the environment, they think about changing temperatures, things getting hotter, for example, or they think about changes in in weather, precipitation. They think about droughts or more rain or less rain. But just the fact that we're putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere has its own effects, separate from its effects on, on temperature or, or, or weather, in that um, there's a whole lot of tree species that are actually growing a lot faster now than they just did just a few decades ago because there's more CO2 in the atmosphere. What's happening is that trees are now growing a heck of a lot faster 
many of these savanna trees are now growing a heck of a lot faster than they did just a few decades ago because we've raised the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that means that savannas are turning into very dense woodlands. Now, you've got a whole bunch of species that have evolved in these open habitats, in these open grassy habitats. And one of the most well-known of these is the cheetah, right? The cheetah being this uh, predatory cat that relies on speed and has evolved to be really a really, really fast runner because it's evolved in these open habitats that have a lot of space to run in. What's happening to cheetahs now is that their habitats are closing in. These dense thickets of thorn trees are taking over the grasslands. This means that when a lot of them run, they get eye injuries. Literally, they run into these thorns. And that makes them extremely vulnerable to leopards, which are a larger cat, which is much more suited to these dense environments. And now what we're seeing in Namibia is that leopards are moving into areas areas where, uh, that were previously dominated by cheetahs, and leopards, being a bigger, more aggressive cat, are literally killing the cheetahs now in these areas and forcing them out. And we're seeing this fundamental change in the ecosystem because of this incredible woodification, this incredible march of trees. I want to finish by invading your privacy. You have uh, triplets, three young daughters. Have you figured yeah. out how to talk to them about what's happening? No, I haven't, to be honest. Um, I mean, I honestly, I find, especially after having written this book that I hope will help a bunch of other people understand, you know, what is going on out there. Um, what's happening to the planet now is of such fundamental consequence, I don't know what else, how else to put it, that it becomes very difficult to figure out how to talk about it, especially with, with kids. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of, you know, complex kind of weighty subject that I think one has to be quite mature to really take on, you know. And one of the things that people often ask me in this context is, you know, is there hope? Is there hope? I get this question when I do book talks, or I do lectures at universities or, or what have you. There's always somebody in the audience who says, is there hope? And I always say to folks, why are you asking me that question? Do you want to tell me that there's hope and everything's going to be fine and we're going to sort this climate thing out so that you can just carry on living your life and sit in the corner and do nothing about it? Or do you want me to tell you, no, there's no hope at all. Uh, it's all a big colossal disaster, which actually has the same effect. It gives you an excuse to go back and carry on with your life and sit in the corner and do nothing. What I do say to people, though, is I don't think in terms of hope. You know, I see this, there's a very serious problem here. We have to deal with it in a very meaningful way that is actually quite complicated. We have to change huge numbers of things about the way we live in our, in our society, um, which means that it's a very serious and difficult undertaking, you know. But the faster we deal with it, 
the fewer bad effects we're going to see. So it's not an either or. It's not a thing where we're either we're either going to solve this and it's all going to be fine or a, a complete disaster. How bad it gets depends on how meaningfully and how quickly we act. The voice and warning words of Adam Welts. Adam's new book is The End of Eden, Wild Nature in the Age of Climate Breakdown, and it's uh, published by Bloomsbury Sigma. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.